This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Greetings, folks. My name is Dr. Jamar Tisby, back with another episode of Those Meddling Kids, Unmasking the Anti-CRT Crusade in Christian Higher Ed. Now, this may be a generational divide, but that title, Those Meddling Kids, comes from the Scooby-Doo cartoons. There was this, you know, big mystery that they spent the whole episode trying to figure out. And then at the end, when they found the culprit that person would be mad and would say, and I would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for those meddling kids. Now we've got, quote unquote, those meddling kids on Christian colleges and universities at their campuses. These meddling kids want to see racial justice, want to see racial progress. How dare they? And in response, there has been what I'm calling an anti-critical race theory crusade. Now, here to help us explore this topic further is someone I'm very honored to have gotten to know over the past couple of years, mostly through his work, but also increasingly just through a friendship. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Andrew Whitehead. Yeah, it's great to be here and good to see you again, Jamar. For folks who uh, don't have the honor and privilege of knowing you as well as I do, tell us a little bit about your educational background and your current position? Yeah, definitely. So I'm a sociologist, so studying human interactions and the consequences of those interactions. And a lot of my work focuses on large national surveys um, and really interested in how religion operates in the U.S. and how culture and American society shapes religion. And so I did my graduate work um, and earned my Ph.D. at Baylor University. And since then, I've hopped around at some different places. Um, the longest stretch was at Clemson University. And then a couple years ago, I moved to Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, or IUPUI, um, here in Indiana. And uh, yeah, two years ago uh, is when um, my first book that I co-authored with Sam Perry came out on Christian nationalism. We'd been working on, hey, there you go, taking America back for God. Thank you. Um, and then we've been working, you know, in this area for about um, 10 years now um, and did a lot of peer reviewed research. And so, um, yeah, professionally been wrestling with with some of these questions for a while now. And then personally, too, um, since my days, you know, growing up uh, in church and within evangelicalism and then, too, as an undergrad and, and beyond wrestling with, um, yeah, what is Christian nationalism? What does it mean for us? Um, and that's kind of, yeah, a quick story of, of where I, you know, find myself today. Eminently qualified, and you're only going to reinforce that as this conversation goes on. So this is a question I've been asking. Um, we've, I know you're not trained as a critical race theory scholar, but right. we've all had to somewhat engage in this and learn more about it because of this crusade against it and all the misinformation around it. Mm -hmm. So 
in your understanding or in, in your perspective, what's important for us to know about critical race theory, either stuff that needs to get untangled or stuff that you want to clear up? What, what would you say to college students is important to know about CRT? Yeah, I think the big thing um, that you mention and highlight is is really understanding um, and, and working to understand and I guess showing some humility about critical race theory um, and how much uh, maybe we don't know, right? So I, I'm not a critical race theorist, and so I'm not a specialist in it. And uh, a lot of people that have a lot to say about it, we should recognize too, aren't critical race theorists um, and haven't engaged deeply with that work either. And so I think one of the big tasks that, you know, I appreciate what you're doing, Jamar, is is helping point uh, to voices that have studied this and have spent time and have worked on this. And that's key. And so I'm continuing to learn as well. But I think one of the, the big takeaways of critical race theory that I think really aligns to with sociology um, is understanding that inequality in our society and really any society, but especially in America and in our history, um, is, is written into um, a lot of the, the rules and laws that govern um, our daily lives. And, and these aren't things that are you know, uh, contingent on one person believing a certain thing, but these structure how we interact. And so as sociologists, right, we study um, how the social world creates a framework, right, that um, can conscribe even the choices that we have, um, you know, and so we talk about, well, is America a meritocracy? You know, is, can anybody really just work hard and make it? And really quickly you start to see uh, that's not necessarily true. And those are structured along racial and ethnic lines, as well as gender, sexuality, other things too. And so, um, you know, critical race theory and, and sociology, I think these are some tools that can help us better understand why the world is the way that it is, how we got here. Um, and as we do that together, we can understand and hopefully empathize with, with the voices and people that are saying, hey, you know, my experience is not like that. Um, and so for me is, you know, growing up, um, working class, white man, things work differently for me than for um, somebody that didn't grow up in that space. And so sociology, critical race theory, some of these tools um, help me see that. And so hopefully learning more. And I think that's the goal overall of, of what we're trying to do. I really wish every college student could hear that answer because I think it would frame critical race theory and really a lot of different academic theories so well. It's not the boogeyman that we need to be afraid of. It is another tool of something that we agree with parts, disagree with parts, add, revise, change, and learn from just like anything else. So I really appreciate that commentary. Now, what I'm so excited about with our conversation is we've been talking about critical race theory. We've been talking about the crusade against it, all this misinformation. But what really gets me is that this entire endeavor to, to sort of demonize critical race theory is a distraction from what I think is, is, is the critical issue, the critical threat to democracy and to the witness of the church in the United States today. And that is Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. So let's dig in. Yeah. Dr. Whitehead, give us a, a, a explanation, quick and dirty explanation of Christian nationalism. Yeah. 
So Christian nationalism in, in my work, Sam Perry's work, uh, Phil Gorski, others that are in this space, um, we, we define Christian nationalism as a cultural framework that advocates for a fusion of a particular type and expression of Christianity with American civic life. Um, and so it combines a number of different elements. And so to tick those off really quick, the first element is a strong sense of moral traditionalism. And this is based on creating and sustaining social hierarchies, right? So who's at the top, who's in the middle, who's at the bottom. And a lot of times these revolve around gender, sexuality, but also race and ethnicity. The second element is a comfort with authoritarian social control. So the idea is the world's a chaotic place and sometimes we need strong rulers to make use of violence or at least the threat of violence to maintain order. Um, and that order is, is key. And so the final element is a desire for strict boundaries around then who is in the us, right, in quotes, um, and who is the them. And so around national identity, civic participation, social belonging, and a lot of these things fall along ethno-racial lines. So when we talk about, and we hear Americans talk about a Christian nation, what that's generally saying as a cultural framework that, again, is composed of all these different elements, is that um, a Christian nation is one where white, natural-born citizens are generally held up as the ideal um, with everybody else coming after. And so cultural frameworks like Christian nationalism, you can think of those as the scaffolding around which human interaction is um, framed and formed. So they consist of stories and narratives that we tell about ourselves, who we are, how we came to be here, where we're going, how we should get there. Um, and, and these symbols and narratives and traditions, they do unite us. They dramatize the values that we should hold dear. Um, but something that you've said, you know, Jamar, in the past that I think applies so well to this conversation and Christian nationalism specifically is that it's most powerful when we don't even notice it and recognize it, that they just are. They're taken for granted. It's kind of the uh, water that we're swimming in. Right. And so the, to the extent that Christian nationalism and cultural frameworks are taken for granted, that's when they're most powerful. And in this case, when they can be the most destructive because again we don't really see it around us and that was my experience growing up and i'm sure for many you know white christians um that they probably share that experience as well so hopefully that wasn't too long but that's what we're talking about when we're talking about christian nationalism i appreciate that and we're going to dig in and get even more concrete first i want to clarify uh, or, or ask you to clarify um are all white evangelicals christian mm -hmm. nationalists no, they are not. Um, so this is a great point. So when we survey the American public, what we find is that Christian nationalism is um, really uh, well represented within white evangelicalism. So by that, I'm saying that when we poll um, you know, thousands of Americans, we're, when we look at white evangelicals, we're going to see probably 70, 80 percent of them who embrace Christian nationalism to some extent. Um, now, Christian nationalism is not a binary either or. It's not you are a Christian nationalist or not. What we find is it's a spectrum. But a lot of white evangelicals, they're on that upper half, at least, of the spectrum. But around 20% or so reject or resist Christian nationalism. So it is a minority, 
but it, it is something that we have to pay attention to and that matters. So we can say that Christian nationalism um, is well represented within white evangelical spaces, but we've also found that it is diffused across the American population. So when we look at white Catholics or white mainline Protestants, or we look at even unaffiliated Americans, the numbers might be lower, but there are at least majorities in some of those groups or substantial minorities who again embrace Christian nationalism to some extent. So while it is well represented within white evangelicalism, it's not, uh, it can't be equated with that religious group. Um, it has diffused across the population. And again, that's what makes it so powerful. Incredibly important distinction that I appreciate you laying out there. Just because one uh, identifies as evangelical or white evangelical doesn't automatically mean they're Christian nationalists, but as you said, well represented, 70 to 80 percent. And yeah. so, you know, maybe this conversation is for that 20 percent or so who, mm -hmm. who would reject or resist Christian nationalism. On a similar point, mm -hmm. are all Republicans Christian nationalists? That's another great uh, point. So no is the, is the quick answer. Now, again, like with white evangelicals, is there a large degree of overlap? Yes. So when we look at Republicans, you're going to see around half, um, at least a, a slim majority who embrace Christian nationalism to some extent. Um, and that number can go up at times. Um, but what we find, too, is that among independents or even Democrats, you're going to have um, a number of them that embrace Christian nationalism, too. And on the flip side, you will have Republicans who um, are you know, right in the middle of that scale, who aren't strongly embracing it, or who either reject or resist it. But the, the truth is, is over the last 40 to 50 years, especially through the rise of the Christian right in the 70s and you know, a history you know, that you dig into in your book, um, Color of Compromise, Jamar, is that um, you know, the, the Christian right and uh, the Republican Party, there has been a strong overlap here. And that group has been building. And, and today we see that even more so. Um, and so, again, it's not a one to one. Um, but like with white evangelicals, there is a greater likelihood that Republicans do embrace it to some extent. But again, it's not um, the exact same. I really appreciate that. And I just want folks to understand that, that this isn't picking on white evangelicals. It's not picking on Republicans. It is saying that, uh, that those terms are not synonymous with Christian nationalism, but there is a large degree of overlap. There is a preponderance. And so we're just yeah. being honest about that in, in, in this sphere. Um, yeah. So we've been defining Christian nationalism, but why should we care about it? Um, and another way to put that is, what is the danger or the threat of it? Oh, yeah. So I think this is this is really important. It's something that, um, you know, our book gets into um, Phil uh, Gorski and Sam Perry's new book, uh, The Flag and the Cross, gets into especially looking at the threat to democracy. Um, but I think, you know, as a take home story of a lot of the research that we've done, whether it's looking at race and ethnicity or it's looking at um, gender and sexuality or we're looking at uh, immigration and, and attitudes towards immigrants and refugees, um, or we're looking at religious minority groups. And what we see over and over is that the stronger that somebody embraces Christian nationalism, the more likely they are to hold more racist attitudes, to fear um, immigrants, to fear religious minorities, or to fear uh, secular Americans, um, and to want to restrict their rights. And so when we look at it in that sense, what calls for a Christian nation um, generally are about, really, 
is a nation where white Americans maintained a privileged position in the social hierarchy. So racial inequality or religious inequality um, are legitimized as the result of individual shortcomings from those minority groups, right? Um, where when we see differences in wealth and health and opportunities across racial and ethnic lines or other social um, locations, um, these are often viewed as natural or even prescribed by God. Um, and it allows Americans to basically whitewash or ignore the structural or systemic causes of those inequalities in service of upholding a narrative where the U.S. has a special relationship with the Christian God. And so I think then this is kind of the keyhole to where we see this reaction to critical race theory, but they've been reacting to the different boogeymen for decades. This is just the latest, is that anything that points out, hey, there might be inequality and there might be things that we have been a part of that have sustained or created that inequality that we could work towards or change, um, you know, white Christian nationalism is going to be invested in trying to ignore that. Um, because again, those that are at the top of the hierarchy in any sense um, want to stay there because defending that position is, is key. And so I think the overall danger is that it really blinds us to where we have gone wrong um, and how we should try and do better. Um, and so when we look at democracy and limiting access to the vote, gerrymandering or, or other things, you know, Christian nationalism, we see over and over Americans that embrace it, they really aren't in support of a democracy where everybody has a say. And so um, sharing power, um, hearing from different voices um, is key. So when it comes down to democracy or power, Christian nationalism is going to choose power every time. So it's not interested in the government for the people, by the people, but for a particular people, by a particular people. And, and I think that is, is the real threat. So to the democracy and then to, to the gospel. Um, so if you know, people uh, are Christians um, and are interested in um, the kingdom of God and the flourishing of all people, Christian nationalism is a threat there as well. And you know, we could talk more about that later perhaps, but um, whether we're interested in democracy or the Christian faith, Christian nationalism is a threat to both of those um, in, in key and distinctive ways. I already know this is an episode people are going to have to go back and listen to a couple of times because there's so much good information that you're sharing with us. I appreciate it. Yeah. Let me go back to something that you mentioned before, that Christian nationalism isn't a binary. You either are or you aren't, but more of a spectrum. Can you explain yeah. more of that? Yeah. So this is really kind of the result of how we measure it. So when we send out surveys to large numbers of the American public, we ask them different questions and they can agree, strongly agree or disagree or strongly disagree with a number of them. And so we're constantly trying new questions because that's what science is all about is, you know, you have a hypothesis and then you try and measure it um, and falsify what you think might be there. And so um, questions that we tend to ask are things like, should the federal government declare the, the United States a Christian nation? Or should it advocate Christian values? Um, or, uh, you know, does the, is the United States, does it have a special relationship with God and God's plan or purpose for the world? So trying to kind of unpack how, how people view this relationship between Christianity, God, the United States, um, our social and, and cultural uh, public sphere. And so the extent that they uh, strongly agree or agree with it or disagree or strongly disagree, we assign a point value. 
And so if I'm answering those questions and I'm strongly agreeing with all of them, right, I might score four on each one. We add those together. And then, you know, Jamar, if you take the test and you strongly disagree with all of them, you have a zero. And so when we add it all together, you have a zero. So now we have this whole spectrum where I might be at the top end, Jamar, you might be at the low end, but people that are undecided or maybe just agree or disagree with a couple of those questions, they're in the middle. And what we find is that Americans are spread all across this. And so you're going to have Americans who we might call accommodators. So they might be, you know, right around the middle of this scale to um, maybe up to the, the um, you know, the top uh, quarter of that um, upper half. We might have ambassadors who are those that strongly embrace it and they're at this top half uh, quarter of it. We might have rejectors at the bottom quarter. And so again, where you fall on that scale matters. And so it isn't just a either or, but are you kind of in the middle? Are you at the upper end, lower end? Um, and so when we try to predict different attitudes, we see it, it really matters where you at, where you're at on that scale. I really appreciate that. And that I think will help people understand that uh, some of the loudest voices we hear are, right. are at the extremes, right. um, whether the high or low end of the scale. But a lot of folks might fall somewhere in between that. And I think that's especially important for college students who, who may have grown up in churches that mm -hmm. are to some degree teaching Christian nationalism and to, to understand they can locate themselves differently. And again, highly recommend um, the book, Taking America Back for God. It explains all of that categorization in the opening chapters. So sometimes we hear the term, not just Christian nationalism, but white Christian nationalism. Can you unpack a little bit the role that race plays in this ideology? Yeah, that's it. That's a great question. So a couple things. Yeah, we we tend to want to use white Christian nationalism because what we found over and over um, is that Christian nationalism in the U.S. is um, inextricably tied to race. And a lot of this is because of our history. So, again, I just keep repping your book. Color of Compromise was really influential and helpful to me to understand this history of how race was intimately intertwined from the earliest moments, even before the founding of the U.S., but when the first colonists came here to where, you know, European white Christian equals good and then black heathen um, non-Christian bad. Right. And those things just then formed and solidified over time. And so when we're talking about religion in the U.S., it's it is racialized that um, there are differences uh, across racial and ethnic categories. And again, this isn't um, every single person fits into this. But when we survey the American public, on average, probabilistically, right, race is going to matter. So when we um, send questions to white Americans about Christian nationalism, um, we find that those questions work for them in a different way than if African Americans might respond to those questions. And so one of the key ways we see this play out um, is that for white Americans who embrace Christian nationalism, they tend to want to ignore racial inequality. Um, they might oppose, for instance, interracial marriage or even transracial adoption. Um, they might be more likely to attribute racial inequality to um, what they see as personal or individual shortcomings um, from black Americans rather than structural explanations like the ongoing effects of Jim Crow or hundreds of years of slavery. Um, or even the, the use of deadly force by police officers. We see that white Americans who embrace Christian nationalism, they're more likely to uh, essentially support that deadly force. But when 
black Americans respond to these questions, we find that it works in an entirely different direction. And so Christian nationalism for these folks, we think, and, and what we uh, hypothesize, is that they're interpreting these through um, the lens of their social experience, right? So uh, historically mi minority or marginalized groups, when they hear this idea of uh, a Christian nation, um, really what I think is happening is in the, the um, you know, the work of Frederick Douglass or uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or Reverend William Barber, when they're talking about a Christian nation, they're saying and seeing, hey, if, if this is a Christian nation, then it should look Christian, which means black Americans or other minority or marginalized groups should have access um, to, you know, a flourishing society where they have not for decades, for centuries. And so um, when we're talking about Christian nationalism and the detrimental effects, it, it really is a white Christian nationalism. And so in that sense, too, it's not just talking about the skin color of the person that embraces it, but it's talking about whiteness, where, um, again, whiteness is, you know, these um, the, the political systems and social systems um, are, are organized in such a way that they're on average, they're going to benefit a particular group. And again, that's white Americans, and that's how it was structured. And so... Yeah, when we're talking about Christian nationalism, it really is a white Christian nationalism here in the U.S. And that's so helpful. I, I'm, I'm sitting here wearing a uh, T-shirt that has the uh, black power fist with an African print and everything. And there would be some who would say, well, you're just provo promoting Christian national, black Christian nationalism or, mm -hmm. or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're saying there's a distinction um, in, in terms of interpreting the sort of role of faith in, in society and faith in politics. Um, I really appreciate that. So let's let's talk about what Christian college students can do. So mm -hmm. first of all, if I'm a college student at a um, Christian college or university, how would I recognize signs of Christian nationalism at my school? Are there any cultural symbols or, or, mm -hmm. or things that I should be looking for? Yeah, no, this is a great question, and um, it's one that I think is constantly shifting and changing. But there are a couple of things that even in my research or in my own personal journey um, that, that I could highlight as, as just kind of things to, to think about. So one is, you know, if you walk into a congregation um, or, you know, a sanctuary, sacred space, um, and you see uh, the American flag at the front um, or in that sanctuary, right, um, what signal does that send to Christians from other countries if they were walking that same sanctuary, right? Or ask yourself, what would happen if that was removed? So people might say, oh, a flag in a sanctuary, that, you know, that's no big deal. But I would bet pretty good money that if the pastor, preacher, clergy took that flag out, there would be, at least from a portion of the congregation, there would be questions, right? Things would start to happen. And so I think then we start to pull the thread and we see, okay, that flag means something, right? It might be innocuous. And that's the part where with Christian nationalism, a lot of times um, the taken for grantedness, um, it's when we start to pull back that curtain that all of a sudden now um, we see, oh, this meant something. Um, another thing that we've run into in our research, we talk about this in the book, are, you know, around July 4th, we have these Celebrate America services where you go and, you know, you're hearing a lot of songs, but they're, you know, America the Beautiful or God Bless the USA um, and God Bless America, or you might hear the U.S. military um, songs. And so, you know, there's 
a patriotism and a fondness for, you know, the people of our country, like if we're watching the Olympics, right? Uh, I don't know this person running the 800 meters, but they're from the U.S. And so I'm, you know, I feel like I'm on their side. And, and so that, you know, might be more patriotism, a fondness. But with Christian nationalism, this exaltation of the U.S. over and above any other nation or people, or that God, or we have a certainty that God has a stake in the triumph, ultimate triumph of the U.S. Or, you know, I heard one person at one of these services say that um, through good times and bad, God has always been on our side. And those are words that, wow, we really have to sit with and think about, right? The U.S. and, and our history, good and bad, um, the U.S. has moved towards justice in a lot of ways and has not in a lot of ways. But to think that God has always been on our side, that's really powerful. So those are some things you can think about. Now, and I guess some quick hits. Sorry, I'll just keep, I get going, get excited. But some quick hits, right? Um, if we're, if you're listening to a message and they're talking, a pastor's talking about moral values and, 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 and there are certain moral values that are always the only truly biblical values, um, what's being left out? I know growing up in white evangelical spaces, I didn't hear a single message on racial justice. So what's being preached as truly biblical values? Do the messages encourage us to love the world or to fear and defeat those in the world? Are we being encouraged to seek justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly, or is justice a dirty word? Do people fear and just think like, do you feel a sense of threat um, and fear or a sense of hope and encouragement? Um, are you embracing love and liberation or is it about embracing power and control? Um, and so just thinking about what's being said, um, real quick, a nostalgia for the good old days. Well, were the good old days good for everybody, right? And this is where history, Jamar's book, other books, we need to know our history and think, well, if we went back, would have, those days have been good for everyone? Um, us versus them thinking, right? Us being good, them being evil or un-American. Is that Christian? Should we, should we um, think through those things? Um, there, there are probably more, but hopefully those are some to, to start to listen and think through. And even how we're feeling in certain situations, um, is this embracing you know, wholeness and love or is this about fearing and, and, and grasping for power? I really appreciate that. And I'm glad you elaborated even further because we can talk about the definitions, we can talk about the theory, but th this is happening day to day in real time in classrooms we're showing up in books the news all of that so it's really critical at a young age uh, to be able to spot the signs of christian nationalism and so as we're spotting those signs then how can i if i'm a college student be proactive about unlearning christian nationalism and about learning a better a healthier mm. christian faith yeah, no, that's a great question. I think, you know, the first thing is is being exposed to um, writers and thinkers and speakers who are outside our realm of experience, right? And so, um, you know, trying to read books um, and and hear thoughts of those that, that grew up in different places or with different experiences is going to be helpful to us. Um, one thing that, that we can do is there's a movement, uh, Christians Against Christian Nationalism. So it's focused on uniting and equipping Christians to confront and oppose Christian nationalism. There's a lot of resources there. I think that's one way to kind of start to get involved. Um, another thing that we can do is supporting um, religious liberty um, and, and no longer allowing that to be redefined. So religious liberty should refer to the right of any citizen um, 
to practice or not practice religion without governmental interference. But over time, um, Christian nationalism and those that embrace it, they're really redefining religious liberty as the right to bring privately held religious beliefs into the public square with this desire to restore what they view as a Judeo-Christian nation as they see it, which really is just to benefit, you know, a single small group. Um, and so knowing um, and recognizing, hey, religious freedom, religious liberty um, should be about anybody and everybody to be able to practice or not practice without any governmental interference. Um, I think too, you know, beyond listening and learning from those who grew up in different experiences or in marginalized communities is um, to recognize that if we really want a pluralistic democratic society, it's where everybody has a say. And so if we're in a place of privilege um, in, in one section or another um, is to stand with the marginalized, right? So I have a friend and um, interviewed for, for this next book that I, I am working on. And I love how she says it. She says, no relationship is apolitical. Right? So if we have relationships with people, then we stand with them. And um, that might mean that we need to speak truth to power. Or we need to counter these systems that place them um, in an unequal position and, and deny them access to the rights of citizenship um, or the ability to flourish. And so, you know, building empathy, paying attention to diversity around us, seeking proximity to those that might be different, um, hopefully developing humility, right? That we aren't in control, we don't have to be in control, that we have a lot to learn. Um, and that should hopefully then lead us to sacrifice for those groups so that everybody can flourish, right? So as a Christian myself, if if I'm intent on the gospel and seeing um, and, and understanding that that means the flourishing here and now, right? The kingdom has come. Jesus taught us to pray that may your kingdom come on earth. It isn't just this future thing, but here, we should be seeking flourishing and abundance um, for all people. And, and to be a part of that work, um, yeah, means we have to counter Christian nationalism to stand with the marginalized, to seek religious liberty, um, to understand and, and, and know that um, those from different areas um, and experiences can help us see the world in a new way and to create a world where we all can flourish. And I think that's hopefully what we want and what we want to see happen. You've just laid out a beautiful vision, I think, of the faith, certainly one that far surpasses and transcends some uh, vision of the United States as God's favored country. Yeah. And I just want to encourage Christian college students uh, to to heed your words, because what it's telling us is you can take ownership of your education. You can definitely listen to voices outside of your typical experiences. Yes. I always encourage folks, go to the cultural events, you know, if it's yes. Black History Month or, or AAPI Heritage Month or something like that, and they're putting on events or they're putting out resources, that's for you too. Um, and, and there's all kinds of ways that you can take a syllabus that a professor gives you and say, how can I be proactive about my reading, about my writing assignments, about my projects, and make sure that it's moving toward this expansive, inclusive, pluralistic vision of democracy and of uh, a, a Christianity itself. So thank yeah. you for that reminder. I want folks, I know folks are going to want to keep learning from you. So what's the best way to keep up with you? And what's a, a project that you're working on now that you might want to tell us about? Well, thank you, uh, Jamar, for that. So on social media, you can find me on Twitter. That's where a lot of times I'm responding to you know, all that's happening around us. 
um, and putting out kind of new research or, or new findings um, about Christian nationalism and Christianity. Um, and I also just finished and, and now working on editing uh, my next book, which builds off of the research that's in Taking America Back for God, but kind of brings in my own personal journey and history, um, you know, as a sociologist, but also as a, as a Christian um, in wrestling with these issues. Um, and so it's titled American Idolatry, How Christian Nationalism Betrays the Gospel and Threatens the Church. And so it should be out, you know, in the first or mid part of 2023. Um, and so, yeah, in that book, um, just trying to show that journey. And, and I think that's a key part is that this is a journey. And so I so appreciate what you said about students taking control of their education. Uh, it doesn't all just have to happen in a classroom and and seeking diverse voices because, you know, Jamar, I never through uh, my whole college experience had a course taught by a black man. I had one course taught by a black woman, but every other course, right, was um, a white person. Um, and so that wasn't a choice that necessarily I made, but the the system and the structure around me, right, put me in that, that route. And so, you know, as I read your book, Color for Compromise, years ago now, that was a part of me, even with a PhD, continuing to learn, right, and trying to seek out, well, what do I, what do I not know? Because it's a lot. And so, yeah, just understanding we're all on a journey and we're all working together and just giving yourself time and space to do that. So, sorry, I that was one thought that came to mind um, as we were finishing up. But yeah, on Twitter, next book. Yeah, I appreciate that, Jamar. Thank you. No, we appreciate you. We can tell you're a professor. Your explanations were so clear and so informative. I am deeply, immensely grateful because even as we talk about this anti-CRT crusade, we need to be aware of the imminent threat and the urgent danger of Christian nationalism. You've helped us do just that. Thank you so much, Professor Whitehead. Yeah, thank you.